I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Obesity, or the medicalized notion of over-fatness, has been a main focus of the public health field for decades. Obesity has long been referred to as an epidemic, both in the United States and worldwide. As such, the public health force has developed many interventions intended to promote weight-managing behaviors at all ages with unparalleled zeal. And my guest today whose words I just read, has suffered at the hand of most of them. Marquisele Mercedes, once a recipient of a body-shaming obesity report card, is now a presidential fellow at the Brown University School of Public Health, where I think she is paving the way for a new, more inclusive, truly intersectional vision for public health. Mikey, as she is better known, is here to talk with us about how racism, anti-blackism, and fat phobia have profoundly shaped healthcare, research, and public health promotion and training, and to offer us her unique lens so that we can all think critically about the messages we send our children, the power of the language we use with each other, And to imagine how much safer, how much more humane, and yes, even healthier, the world could be if we could all just learn to demedicalize fatness. Mikey, welcome to the show. So, you know, fat studies is a very, very particular academic domain, right? Academic domain in that, you know, we think about it in terms of its publications, in terms of its scholars and stuff. Although, the field has done a really good job at incorporating activism and real life advocates into that work as often as it can. But I think that in declaring that I'm someone who is at the intersection of fat studies and scholarship on racism, it's definitely not an opposition, but it's in contrast to a lot of the work that happens in fat studies and in, in contrast to the work that happens like in generally like the space of fat liberation, fat activism, et cetera. You know, the way that systems of oppression work is that they have these sort of telltale marks that expose themselves in every single domain in which they replicate themselves, right? So we were talking about racism and let's say within activist circles, you'll notice that the most well-known, the most well-financed projects coming from activists are usually people who are lighter skinned, who are thin, who have prestigious academic affiliations. These are forms of like colorism, featureism, and classism that have replicated themselves in a space that's supposed to be aware of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And fat studies is very much the same way. Mm -hmm. Like, It's all about centering and redefining what fat is, but that is often done through the lens of white people, of white academics. You know, most of the work that I've seen, while wonderful and like, you know, you just read a thing that sometimes makes your heart sing, like a lot of it is coming from this place that just doesn't accommodate fat people of color. And so when I'm saying like, 
here I am at the intersection of fat studies and scholarship on racism. It means that my work always centers fat black people. Always, you know, whether they're two or 82, like that's where my fire comes from. And I really don't think that we can have a discussion about sizeism or weight stigma without addressing racism. I mean, we can talk about Sabrina Strings and fearing the black body and like all that, like, you know, which we did, which we did, which you did. So like, you know, we, we can talk about that, but there's a certain point at which that book stops. Like that Mm -hmm. book also has limitations in itself, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Sabrina Strings is a thin black academic. And there's just inherent limitations around that lens, especially when we're talking about societal fat phobia. There's also a point at which, you know, we get to the modern day and then we're skipping ahead talking about the quote unquote obesity epidemic. And this is obviously getting very nitty gritty into this book. Sorry. But <laughs> that's okay. what I'm used to doing. That's okay. <laughs> in a program, but like, you know, there's a certain point where we have to say like, yes, this is a wonderful source of information. How can we build on that? And like, it's not a catch-all resource. So expanding on the things that String doesn't talk about, like how does racism and fat phobia collide online? How mm-hmm. does racism and fat phobia collide within communities that are racialized? Like, how do these things work? And so that's the stuff that I'm interested in, as well as, you know, she's not like a health scholar. So as someone in public health, the work that's present at the intersection of fat studies and public health is basically non-existent. There's a few people who do it and the rest, you know, sort of just like work around it. Although Mm. there's lots of people who don't outwardly, you know, challenge the weight paradigm that I know are very like, I hate this. I hate using BMI. And like they're, you know, like so there are allies there, but the work that's actually at the intersection of fat studies and public health is non-existent there's like five people I can probably name that really do that work and two of them don't even necessarily like declare themselves to be that kind of person Mm. so I'm taking that place because I have to not necessarily because you know that's how I define myself otherwise although you know I found a home in that little intersection of studies and it and it's wonderful it makes your heart sing yeah, it makes my heart sing. It, it's it's wonderful and it's fulfilling and, and it feels great to like sit down with my advisors and be like, so I read about healthism today and they'll be like, what is that? You're sort of schooling them. Yeah. And that's the position that I'm in. Yeah. Partly because fat studies doesn't really exist in public health, but also because even people who study weight stigma in public health don't accommodate people who aren't white. As you say it, I think about the guests I've had on this podcast who, and it's not been for lack of trying, and they've all been incredible and made contributions for the most part. Some episodes have required more editing of language. (laughs) I'm like, ah, don't say that. Okay, I can just edit it out. But I think what you're saying, it shows up even when we don't want it to, that I've pushed myself to look for new voices because in a way, if you just have the same, not the same person, but like the same identity coming on and they, they're mostly thin white cis academics that have done really meaningful research in the context that we have. Extremely meaningful, like extremely meaningful. You know, we're not saying it's not, it's just that we have to hold this exclusion in balance with the good stuff. 
I agree. I agree. I mean, and sometimes it's egregious and you, you can't like you just yes. have to reject <laughs> that and say, no, thank you. But I do think that virtually everyone that's been on here and contributed their time to me and our listeners are making meaningful contributions. But I hear you saying you're trying to break a glass ceiling and there are a couple of you trying to do it. And I'm here to say she's doing it. And it's like, we need to, (laughs) we need to keep doing it. I, before we move on from this, I'm curious, it's not a question I asked you to prepare for, but you said this, um, the mixture of racism and sizeism, how it shows up everywhere. How do you think it shows up at the playground? Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I'm sure that by now you've heard of that study, like, oh, kids as young as like five or six ranked fat kids last in terms of who they would want to be friends with. You know, that study, I feel like first, it was one of the first things that I read in the space of fat studies. And it's not even necessarily fat studies research. It's just, it was mentioned in something that I was reading, specifically the fat studies reader. And as someone who grew up as a fat kid, as someone who has reviewed that research now, you know, kids can only really process, and this is something I said just this morning, kids can only really process the real root of the messages we're sending about bodies. You know, they can't take the things we tell them. For example, if you weigh a kid at school, or if you send a child home with a BMI report card. Please don't. Please don't. (laughs) I've gone home with BMI report cards. These were popular interventions in New York you know, a few years ago, they can only take the root of what we're saying. So like they can't go home with the BMI report card and be like, oh, you know, I understand that this isn't supposed to be stigmatizing, although I feel really bad when I see it. All they can really process is this makes me feel bad. This makes me feel bad about my body. That means there's something wrong with me. Those things that we do to kids in public health as a means of health promotion, other kids see that. Kids are learning exclusion from adults. These aren't things that are just like born of air or born within Mm. ourselves. We are learning exclusion and we're learning it all the time. By the time I was like seven, I was well aware that, you know, adults were more likely than not going to lecture me about my body at some point when I presented myself in public. And that could be anyone. That could be family. That could be family friends. That could be strangers. That could be anyone. And I knew that I was going to receive that kind of ridicule because I already knew what kind of ridicule I received at school. I already knew what kind of ridicule I received, you know, in conversations like with my friends. The first thing that they would throw back at me was that I was fat. Like these are things that kids absorb with none of the nuance, if there's any there. Mm-hmm. if there is any there like <laughs> to right. emphasize right. like because most of the time they're not there's no nuance to sending a kid home with a BMI report card but for something like you know having a class at school about you know this was something that they do in the Bronx all the time these like cook shop classes they send fresh green ingredients to schools and then students see like a demonstration on how to put together a healthy meal usually that healthy meal looks nothing like what they're eating at home And it looks nothing like what any of their family eats. And it looks like the stuff that they see on TV when they watch sitcoms with white people. You know, even something like that, where we're like actually very well-meaning and trying to like get kids to be better, be better, you know, whatever that means. And I put quotations around that because 
there isn't morality to health seeking behavior, but that's the world we live in. They're not getting that. And to an extent, I, I I wonder if they should ever. Like, I don't think that there's anything to be gained by children being forced to reckon with the nuance of, like, the messages they're getting about their bodies. Like, they shouldn't. The point is that certain adults want them to feel like shit because of their size. And they get that message loud and clear. That's why I feel like stuff like this is so important. Because if I had had the opportunity to have that kind of negative messaging mitigated to some extent, to any extent at home, then I can think of a million different behaviors that I wouldn't have developed. And all of these complexes that I wouldn't still be struggling with, you know, while I'm trying to explain to other people why this is a bad thing (laughs) to do to children. Yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't expect to get that personal anecdote and I'm really appreciating it because one, we haven't had a whole lot of that on the show. People speaking from their personal experience which arguably, and I think even in the like community organizing literature, it's like, we do need to hear people's stories. We can't just listen to research. So in that way, it's meaningful. But I have an interview, a researcher who was part of this team that studied essentially the inefficacy of the BMI weighing kids at school study in Cal- at Berkeley. And granted, their findings are essentially... There are unintended harmful consequences. I already knew what you were going to say before you said it. I mean, and and it's funny because, you know, social media is sort of a strange Wild West vortex. So most of it is crap, you know. But there's a popular BMI is bullshit kind of meme that goes around. And I think we all know it, right? It's true. Weighing kids at school just sounds like a bad idea. But I appreciated this researcher whose team went to the trouble to do the measurements, right, to really do the studies to show how this is not working. Because I'm assuming that we don't get programs like that reversed if we don't have, quote, evidence to show and prove that people are actually either not being, quote, helped or, in fact, potentially maybe being harmed. So I don't mean to diminish the value of that study. I think it's meaningful, but hearing your story, it's just like, you're literally telling us like, folks, I'm traumatized by that intervention. Like, aren't the stories enough? And yet, anyway, I think you know what I'm saying. Make a point to mention it in any space that I'm in. And there's reasons for that. Part of the reason is because of how powerful personal anecdotes are. But the other part of this is that I know that I'm one of very few people who are critical of the weight-centric paradigm in public health because of two things. One, because I've experienced its full brutality. And the other thing is that it literally doesn't make sense scientifically. And I can say that with certainty now. This has always felt like a terrible practice. (laughs) It's always felt terrible because it made me feel bad. But now... I've read everything that they've claimed justifies this kind of violence and it doesn't. And so now, you know, I feel like people put a little bit of extra value when I tell them like, Hey, this thing that we consider to be normal practice is actually extremely harmful. I feel like people listen to me a little bit more now because they know I experience it. And I also know that it doesn't work research wise. So, so what's the next thing? Like, what's the next justification? Right. There isn't one. 
And that's really hard to get around when someone just puts that in your face. Like, well, what is the incentive? Is the use of the BMI just something that makes everybody else's lives easier but fat people? Because that's essentially what the next argument breaks down to. You know, people get into discussions about, oh, well, what do we replace it with in research? And then how will we know about, you know, certain markers of health and like all this? And like, what if we do the research enough and we do find some link between weight and health? None of that is going to happen. If we haven't found a concrete link between weight and health by now, which honestly, that kind of work is never going to be possible unless we somehow create a world without weight stigma and then employ an empirical approach to a study. Because right now, weight stigma confounds every single study that is done on health and weight. If we haven't found it by now, if fat people aren't thin by now, with all of the incentives and all of the messaging telling them to get in smaller bodies, all the rewards for that, all of the value that that has in our social context, if fat people are not thin by now, they are not going to be thin. And that is what it is. And people need to deal with that. Well, and speaking scientifically, fat people will get fatter. That's literally what will happen. Because that's what the body does, right? Like what we know about attempts to lose weight, it screws with your set point and then you end up at a higher weight than you were to begin with. And then that benchmark just keeps getting higher and higher and your body just goes through more and more. Your body goes through more and more stress. And then on top of that, you're extremely likely to face the impact of weight cycling, which is like detrimental to your health. And also you're likely to develop disordered eating behaviors which I think a lot more of us than we're willing to admit have. Oh my gosh. The reason for that is because we don't really know that our eating behaviors are disordered because there are certain forms of behavior that are just accepted. Like this fixation with the macros we're consuming and like all this other stuff that makes no difference to your longevity at all. It makes no difference to your longevity or your quality of life. This hyperfixation on food that we have with specialized diets that don't serve any purpose, they don't accommodate any allergies, they don't accommodate any cultural differences at all. None of these things are healthy eating behaviors, but we praise them because they fit into our morally loaded idea of what you know someone taking care of their body right. is doing. And that's ridiculous. I, I agree. I agree. It's very despairing. But okay. You say, let's be careful how we define progress and raise concerns about erasing fatness. I'm thinking about your article, The Eugenics Diet, which I'm going to link to in this (laughs) podcast because everyone should read that too. What do you mean? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind when people bring up this article is just like this really ridiculous message I got after it was published. This guy was incensed you know, at this idea that um, there was any value to allowing fat people to continue to exist. That is a direct phrase. (laughs) He was like, we should exterminate you? Yes. How is that not eugenics? Also, you know, let's backpedal, right? Being careful about how we define progress. Science is a reflection of our societal values. 
if our society systematically, institutionally, interpersonally devalues fat people, the work that comes out of gene line editing, you know, this, this idea that we can craft a better human race, the work that comes out of that is automatically going to exclude fatness, but it's not going to stop there because fatness doesn't exist in a silo. You know, it, it means that we're going to bulldoze over anything that doesn't fit what certain people's idea of what health and goodness is. Mm -hmm. And and make no mistake, this is not a decision that's going to be made in the, like, with ballots and stuff. Like, nobody's going to vote on this. This is going to be a bunch of people sitting at a table saying, okay, how do we eliminate the gene for ADHD? Right. That's what that's going to look like. (laughs) These are not things that people have discussions about because individuals who are already looking to make, you know, like gene line editing a thing that everybody has access to, those individuals already have an an idea in mind of who is healthy and who is not. And we all know who's excluded and who is excluded from that understanding of health. These are not things that people need to have discussions about. So whenever someone's like, let's eliminate the gene for ADHD, people are like, hell yeah, how do we do that? Right. And there you go. Everyone who is a neurodivergent person like myself, I have ADHD. Anyone who exists with any form or mark of inferiority or, or pathological mediocrity, they're gone. They're gone in the way that they would have existed. We eliminate entire identities, entire communities, entire cultures on the basis of health. And for some reason, just because it's done in a lab, we're supposed to call it a good thing. We're supposed to say that we're getting closer to the future that we should be at when really like this is just eugenics two, three, four point oh. Yeah. Like this isn't anything special. It's just wrapped up in different words. I have this odd futuristic science fiction fantasy that I'll run by you. I was thinking about how, well, we'd really know how folks really feel if CRISPR was something you could just like buy at Target because, oh oh my gosh, (laughs) I mean, we would then see, I'm frightened to imagine it because it would not be diverse. It's terrifying. And I mean, that is it. That's, we could talk about that. I mean, you're just like, you're just like, I can't even think about this. Like, I mean, that's, that's how messed up it is. But I mean, if you think, right, like, because what you were saying is there is this sort of widely accepted, well, it's, it's the appearance standards. It's the appearance ideals. And it shows up in, sure, even things like size, like height, color of skin, like how much lighter would skin become if we could just like CRISPR? (laughs) (laughs) There would be a standard for beige everywhere. Okay. It would like, (laughs) that's what it would be. And, and like, you know, to an extent, I can't blame individuals who are marginalized for making those kinds of decisions. No, absolutely not. They're just struggling with the effects of being in this very fucked up space. But, you know, then there's everyone else. And that's not what they're struggling with. They they just want humanity to look differently than it does. And like fat people exist. Like we've always existed. We're not a new invention. This isn't something that was brought on with like the establishment of Coca-Cola. Like we've always existed. And 
now to apply this lens of in you know pathological pathology to something that you know we just come out of the womb and it's like bam 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 like this is just like my size there's nothing innocuous about that it's incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. and that's honestly where I see us going if we continue with the weight-centric paradigm it's not like there's any any you know dearth of funding for this work And there's plenty of public support for it. And there's plenty of policy support for it. And there's plenty of elite support for it. And, you know, then where does that leave us? How do we protect ourselves? How do we retain the things that make us who we are in our minds? How do we not just become carbon copies of the white ideal in this, in the society? Which of course, if you asked anybody who, is invested in that pursuit, if that's what they were doing, they would say no, that diversity is important and that, um, of course, people come in different shapes and sizes and colors because on some level, what we're talking about, it's insidious and it's under consciousness. People aren't aware that that's what they're they're up to. But I want us to take a moment to innovate together (laughs) because... I'm with you. It's it's a little scary, you know, to think that that's where we're headed. And you say, and I agree, that there is a problem with calling obesity an epidemic and that we all need to get that it is a stigmatizing slur. It's a little bit of an uphill battle, right? You're swimming upstream to say that. People still use it. Um, and so I guess I wonder if we could think together, how do we get there? How do we get the powers that be, the industry, school professionals to start using what I feel is the properly censored spelling or just at least understand that in that word is harm. How do we get the stakeholders to change or at least to increase their awareness? It's so difficult because, all right, my specialty is weight stigma interventions. Like that's what, that's what I know right? Well, that's what I know best. And education is not enough. It's never been enough to get people to change their behavior. In weight stigma interventions, we have, you know, there there are certain theories that we base these programs on. For example, most of them try to reduce weight stigma by educating people or, or even reminding people if we're talking about like health professionals, reminding or or educating people on the fact that like weight is largely out of people's control and it never works because making something into a matter of genetics or making it seem natural or what, or, you know, making something seem out of somebody's control, that's not enough to destigmatize it. Right. Mm -hmm. We have to reach for things at the root and depathologize them. And I'm borrowing directly from my colleague, Rachel Fox, who is at, I think university of San Diego But in terms of how to get people to change their language, I faced this when I first decided to focus on weight stigma for my PhD. And I was working on my first class project about weight stigma in clinical interactions. And I just started saying the word fat. And by the end of that experience, my program director, who has probably never used that word in her life, used it in a conversation with me. And it was the most gratifying experience I'd ever had. The thing I've learned most from activism is 
persistence, right? We often think that we can implement a new language policy and like that'll be the thing that sort of gets everybody to stop using the messed up language and and we can be more inclusive and more diverse and welcoming, et cetera. But the reality is people need like, they need the ability to fuck up and they need the opportunity to be corrected continuously. This isn't something that, you know, is solved by a policy. A lot of, and this is especially like loaded in in terms of use of the word obesity, because a lot of people think that the word obesity is less stigmatizing than other words. Right. So you have to sort of break this down and say, no, it's actually not. And here's why. And then you also have to have enough people in a space that feel comfortable with correcting people who are inevitably going to fuck up. And schools and industry are not conducive to that kind of process because it's a very specific environment. You're in front of kids. They're absorbing what you're repeating. People who handle matters of health promotion within schools, it's very unforgiving, grueling work. And, and, you know, like, I, I don't know what the kind of training is for that kind of like practice. But I do know that schools in general are a really difficult place to get people to change their language and behavior, because at least at the schools that I went to, they sort of feel like, oh, well, this is just the standard and we're following the standard. And that's what it is. Like, you know, we're taking these guidances and that's how we're planning our school year. That's how we plan our activities. This is how we know, like, what the range is for, like, you know, what we can and can't do. So yeah, it's really difficult. And I'm like talking through this with you because there's all of this stuff that gets in the way. I think that, and I hate to use this phrase because it's, it doesn't, it, it's usually not, it usually doesn't single anything good, but like, I think the issue of language is going to trickle down. It's one of those <laughs> things that people have to get used to saying and they have to get used to saying it in a way that like, first, there are some fat people who are never going to want to be called fat. And that's like a thing that we can't really do anything about. People should be called what they want to be called. They should be referred to how they want to be referred to. But the issue of getting people to stop using the term like obesity and start censoring it or, or, or changing their approach to weight and health within the school context that's not going to come from schools first. That's going to come from guidances that come up like that are way yeah. above. Yeah. And that's just out of our hands, quote unquote. And I'm thinking about the sticker I got from your Patreon <laughs> that I was, I was like, where do I put this? I put it in um, my copy of Audrey Gord- oh, Gordon's yeah, book. Yeah, so I can I like, saw that. <laughs> but it's the medicalization, right? Your your tagline, I guess, is like demedicalize fatness. And that's, I mean, to your point, we can't assume that we know what word everybody in a larger body wants to use. Like we can't. So it would be presumptuous, like, you know, to say, well, now we're gonna use fat as a school. We're gonna get used to it. Like that wouldn't that wouldn't work. Or in our home, I mean, maybe you could say in our home we say this, but it's the demedicalizing of a fat body that I think that exercise you went through with your teacher. It's like, that's what we need to do. We need to learn how to neutralize this word 
collectively. It's like a collective obligation. Um, and we could have that conversation also with neurodiversity and all sorts of different ways. And like, when we talk about these changes having to come from much higher, like we're not, like, I'm not just talking about guidelines. I mean, like, you know, our policies and how institutions run are just like a reflection of public sentiment, you know? Right. And this is something that like, I tell people when they're thinking about like, how do I get like policy action, like mobilized around this? And I'm just like, your target isn't the policymakers. Your target is the community. Right. Because those policymakers have all kinds of vested interests that you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And no amount of appealing of personal narratives is going to change, you know, whether or not someone's being paid by Novo Nordisk for their next campaign. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Right. And until we have the power to address that specific kind of, you know, influence, we can't do anything about it. What we can do is work on the ground and leverage our expertise, our privilege to say, hey, why are you medicalizing fat? It's like, why is that a thing you're doing? Like, what do you mean you're treating obesity? Right. What does that mean? And we can inspire the next generation to do that and create environments for our young people so that this is just they're breathing new air. They're breathing different air, and which is not a utopia. They're breathing air of more conflict, right? They're learning to challenge the status quo. And I mean, I could go that on and on with you. Is good. Like that we need that yes. tension. Like, yes. That, we that's need right. to know that things can be challenged, that they're challengeable. Right. Right. Because that's, we get stuck in this rut of like, Oh, like, Oh, this is so much bigger than me. And like, I don't know, this is the way it's always been done. Well, have you thought of not doing things that way? Like that's right. like the first question. And it takes so much effort and work to get people to that point where they're just like, maybe I can question why I don't like my body and what utility that serves and to who, and whether that's good for me and whether that makes sense at all. Like it takes a lot to get people there. And so I think that starting from home, starting young, intervening on the negative messaging that kids are getting from all directions about their bodies, like, I think that is some of the most significant work that we can do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, like more so than, you know, whatever's going on with whatever school administrator. Like that's where the work is. Yeah. Well, hopefully those listening can take this and run with it. Before I let you go, although I would love to keep chatting, do you have any resources for us? Oh, man. So I actually just heard about this really cool book that has amazing illustrations called Bodies Are Cool. by Tyler Fetter. And, you know, I think that even more so than stories that, you know, incorporate fat people in our experiences, visuals are so important because a lot of the visceral, like, like anti-fat attitudes that we have there, these are visual cues. Right. Um, And so I feel like work that is tailored to kids that has illustrations of diverse bodies in all kinds of states from all kinds of cultures are incredibly important. So Bodies Are Cool by Tyler Fetter. That's like, I was like so psyched when I saw those illustrations on Instagram. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. And I also, I'm I'm not, you know, someone who works specifically in the space of nutrition, but, you know, 
I love the Food Heaven podcast. Mm. Like they're, Wendy and Jess are great. They have all kinds of guests. And, you know, sometimes it's people like me who are ranting about one thing or another in the the research space. But a lot of the times it's concrete advice that people can probably more more practically apply Mm -hmm. to their lives. Cool. Yeah. So those are the two, I think, that right off the top of my head. Great, great, awesome. I hear a child crying in the other room. This is a perfect outro. Like, yeah, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then they they start tantruming and everybody knows the truth. But this was wonderful. I really, I, I can't thank you enough for giving me your time. And I'll keep you posted when it comes out. And we can hopefully joint promote on social media. Yes, I'm so excited. I'm just glad we finally got to do this. Me too. Uh, I, we I, did it. So we did it. Thinking, it's, it's done. We did it. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a good tale of don't give up just because a pandemic kicks you in the ass. Like, don't give up. Keep going. <laughs> Keep emailing that person that you never met to be like, can we still be friends? <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So let's stay in touch and I'll keep you posted on everything as it comes yeah, out. Email me anytime if you need anything else for this or just in general. Um, I will. Same. Okay. Cool. Be Bye. well. Bye. So that's today's show. As always, the Full Bloom podcast depends on you to rate, review, and share these episodes. This is how more people can find us and join our body-positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening, and tune back in next time for more body-positive nurturing wisdom. Mm-hmm.